Hello and welcome to Furloughed. This is Leonard, your host, and we have Steve with us as always. So Steve, welcome to the show for another week. <laughs> Thank you, Leonard. Happy to be here another week. And, you know, I, I guess we're, we're another week into your furlough, another week into, yes. I, I guess I'm not laid off anymore. I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to define myself by that for the rest of my <laughs> existence. Uh, um, another week in my uh, new journey as a self-employed individual. There you go. And yeah. um, I just got to wonder, how are you doing? I know that it's maybe getting close, maybe not to where you return. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like anticipation can sometimes be worse than the reality of something. So how, I, how are you holding up? I, I would agree. Yeah, I think anticipation is miserable. Um, nobody particularly, <laughs> like, you know, if I'm anticipating ice cream, I still want the ice cream in my hand. If I'm anticipating uh, getting the paddle like I used to do in school back <laughs> in the day when corporal punishment existed, uh, the anticipation was always worse than what the punishment was. So, yeah, it's it's a little unnerving. Uh, but I did have chance to kind of reflect this week, Steve. Um, so this, for anybody in the United States, uh, this past week was 9-11, which of course for mm-hmm. us means it was it was the fall of the Twin Towers in New York. And uh, the reason it stood out to me so much and, and just kind of began to mull over it some, for one thing I saw, I think, more patriotism this year for 9-11 than I have in so long which it's the 19th anniversary of that. It happened in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind, kind of unusual. So I was reflecting as to why it was such a um, patriotic time, or at least so many people posting patriotic things in social media with it. And then I realized what's interesting, there is a tie between 9-11 and between what's happening now with COVID and our pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I was hired for my my current employer where I'm on furlough. I was hired just two weeks prior to 9-11. And once 9-11 hit, there was a hiring freeze and they didn't hire anybody else for six months. And so we went into the American economy as well as others around the globe because all travel ceased for a moment there. And I, I always call it the day the earth stood still. And uh, anyhow, all travel ceased, and it was such a strange time in our history. And of course, that impacted our nation tremendously economically. Um, you know, not only the changes that were taken for security and whatnot, but it, it, it impacted us in a negative way. And so yeah. now, fast forward 19 years later, here we are. In theory, we're at the end of a pandemic. So we've already gone through this traumatic financial setback. And so now our hope is we're at the end of that. Um, And I think that kind of helped people to reflect a little bit back on the day, uh, because we see the economic crisis we're in, and we were in one there. And Mm -hmm. I I think maybe it just made us a little more reflective. So maybe I'm overthinking it, but uh, that's, that's kind of what I see is. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, especially here in the U.S., and if you're our age um, or older, <laughs> it's, it's not something that, that we, we, I think, ever forget, nor would people um, in the U.S. Uh, who were around when Pearl Harbor happened forget uh, hearing the news or when yeah. Kennedy was shot. And I'm sure in every 
culture in every country, you've got similar markers of time that sure. you say, we, we don't, we don't forget these things. And it kind of brings you back. And, you know, this was one of those years I actually felt a little bad because, you know, I woke up um, on the 11th and um, I was just kind of going through the internet stories and stuff. I'm like, why is there so much stuff about when 9-11 happened? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> this is 9-11. This, this, this is, this, this is the year. anniversary. Yeah. yeah. And and I think, um, you know, one of the things I remember about that time, and maybe this kind of goes into what you were saying, is that it was one of those, it was like a slow punch. Yes. That um, uh, I was actually working um, at, a, at a call center um, and somebody said, hey, uh, I was just talking to the, um, uh, it was the, well, the Times uh, or, or the, not the Times Square, that, well, that one's still there. <laughs> it was the World Trade Center Marriott. They were just on the phone with them and yeah. they said, I've got to hang up. Something just hit the building. Yeah. And that was kind of the, the way we were like, what, like a fire truck hit the building or something like that, you know? And then, and then of course, as the news came in and at first it was just kind of like, Oh, this is weird. This is strange. And, um, and then throughout the day, the images, and I think the images are the things that are ingrained on our minds, you know, sure. the, the images of the people jumping off the buildings and, the, and, and I think it, it led to kind of a period of mourning and of anger hmm. And I think maybe in 2020, there are similar feelings, you know, here in the U.S., we're we're coming on to I think we're at 180,000 deaths right now. Um, and it's difficult now to run into people who aren't somehow connected. They don't know somebody who has either had it or um, suffered from it or died from it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know one of my my sister's friends uh, recently passed away. And then um, their spouse, just after burying <laughs> um, uh, their husband, is now been um, diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. And and so there's there's it the, the grieving, I think, the mourning, the death. There's a lot to find in common with it, even though you know its cause is so completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's maybe why, uh, in, in my mind, why we saw such a correlation this year, or at least maybe other people weren't conscious of it being correlation, but I do think um, the helplessness, the despair, and maybe in your, uh, like you're saying, some folks have been more directly impacted by this than uh, plenty of anger and emotions and whatnot. So I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of feel that's why it's been there. But well, this is not the uh, this is not the topic of our show. <laughs> now that we've got everybody in a real mellow mood, at least in the American, yes. <laughs> let's uh, let's kind of transition though uh, from that just a little bit. Um, and, and so, one of the things that's kind of interesting that you and I had an earlier conversation about, which led us to where we are today, was just the words that we use and maybe, you know, maybe this is a great segue to that, you know, because of trying to describe what happened then and what's happening now, obviously we use language to do that. 
And so language is important for us. And, and of course, it really ultimately does tie back to the overarching theme of furloughed. And when we began this project that we call the furloughed podcast here, uh, you know, one of the things about this is really beyond just being out of work, being furloughed, or in your case, laid off and now mm-hmm. self-employed, but it really is we wanted to dig deeper into some of the causes of change because you, you cannot experience a furlough or layoff without some change. And so um, what causes change? How do we react to change? Our own changes that we initiate and some of the emotion behind. And yet really none of this is quite um, clear to us without language and the importance of language. And so we decided we would talk some about language today. And Steve, you had an interesting experience yourself that you had shared with me uh, last week or, or might have been the week before. You you had worked with a class that was an international class and you were the only one that was born speaking English in the classroom. And so <laughs> yes. you, you, had, you were sharing some of the nuances of how they perceived Americans, not just our language, but I, I think they did do some speaking and sharing some English uh, quotes or whatnot. So you want to kind of tell us a little bit about that and continue to segue into language and the importance of it here. And, you know, often actually in the work that I do, I I end up on calls that um, I'm the only one from the United States that's on there. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but generally what they're talking about are business principles and things along those lines. But in these, these calls I had this week, for whatever reason, I had a couple of them that really were going into um, how to work with our culture. And it was very different to see <clears throat> that American culture through the eyes of, of someone who, who didn't grow up here. Um, and even just the, um, the ways that, that they understood some of the, the language that we use or how we've been, or how we're being perceived by other cultures. Uh, since I think sometimes we really take for granted that what we say will be understood in the way that we, maybe intended for it to be, mm-hmm. um, be said. And I know that, you know, I was, <laughs> I was texting you in, in real time. Oh my goodness. You know, they just use this phrase and they just use this other one because a, a lot of it wasn't in English. And I'd only understood when they would say something in English. Um, and then also, you know, I've, I've had, um, uh, the opportunity to learn other languages. I'm not necessarily the, an amazing linguist, but I speak three languages and it's been interesting to see how, as you move from one language to another, uh, there are cultural shifts that happened with it. So um, it was really exciting to think, today let's try and really dissect language and the words that we use, and maybe even go beyond that, because it's not just the words we use, it's our body language, it's our inflection. There's so many nuances to our language and there's so much power in it. I mean, literally, uh, we've seen nations rise and fall based on the way certain words were conveyed at certain times to certain people, essentially reprogramming all their brains <laughs> and, and, and allowing them to see things in a different way for better or worse. And so I think there's just so much that we could try and unpack with language that we never even begin to touch today. Yeah. Well, and, and I think we're, let's, let's kind of start there with just the actual conversation itself. Like you said, we've seen 
rise and fall of nations <laughs> or at least wars begin because of language and whatnot. And so I, I know I, I would like for us just to pause for a moment as, as, as a, you and I and for our listeners here to pause for just a moment and think about a conversation in your life that maybe has changed the trajectory of where you are. And I know that sounds pretty serious. I mean, what the heck, one conversation that changed where I am. Well, I know in my life, I've got a couple of those that I can easily identify without a lot of thought. Um, and, and just a simple one is a conversation my ninth grade English teacher had with me. And uh, <laughs> amazingly enough, in ninth grade, I, I was about to fail English. And of course, you didn't graduate if you didn't fa- pass ninth grade English, needless to say, because you had plenty of other English classes you needed to take. Uh, but within the first 12 weeks of school, my teacher pulled me aside and he talked to me and showed me what my grade was. And one of the beautiful things that he did, Mr. Ralph Houck was his name. He was the uh, baseball coach and also an English teacher. But one of the things that uh, Mr. Houck did was he pulled me aside, didn't embarrass me in front of everybody, but he pulled me aside, showed me the book, and he said, Leonard, I know you can do this. Look at your grade. If you don't improve, you're going to fail. But you can do this. And then he gave me a couple of ideas of what I could do. You know, maybe get a study buddy, maybe do this, maybe do that, a couple things. I don't remember what all he suggested, but I, I took the study buddy option. I found somebody that was smarter than me to study with. And fortunately, uh, we were friends and increased our friendship by doing that. Uh, and, and I went from near failing to nearly getting an A by the time the class was over. But it was the words that he used ultimately, yes, it was a conversation, but it was the words. He was positive when he spoke to me. He was firm when he spoke to me, but he also was encouraging when he spoke to me. And so there's so much meaning behind the words that really that single conversation kept me from failing a class, which Lord knows where I'd be had I failed ninth grade English today. So really, uh, so I, I think it is important, Steve. Oh, absolutely. And it is interesting that like, you, you know, that trajectory could change so drastically just just from those words. I think there's some really interesting neurology that, that goes into what it is about the words we use, when we use them, how we receive them, mm-hmm. that, that really can um, have such an effect or no effect at all. I think that's another part that we can look at is how there's been times, and I think maybe as a parent, you feel this a lot, where you say things and you feel like you've really expressed yourself well, and it's just, it feels like words just bouncing off the wall. They're not, <laughs> they're not entering. So what is it that makes language work at times and what makes it not work? You know, and I'm wondering, Leonard, if, if, if it would make sense for us to just kind of look back and see how our language is formed initially, like how do we come about being able to, in like this circumstance we're having right now, where I'm making a series of sounds and somehow you are receiving those mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's causing some sort of thoughts to be, you know, sparked in, in your mind as well. Yeah. How do you feel if we just kind of step back a little bit and talk about that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because, I, you know, one of the first things we do to a newborn baby is talk to that child. And it's generally at least a year or so before they ever talk back and respond. So it, it's kind of a fascinating thing that we do. 
and, and not even talk, but we start doing the facial expressions, right? That's almost <laughs> one of the first things we do is we start, you know, twisting our faces in all kinds of different ways. We smile at them. We put on a grumpy face and we, you know, that, that there's just so much that we do instinctually right away. And, you know, we think about language and how complex it is. You know, one of the things I, I wanted to, to share was I, I've got some information here from Dr. John M. Marsloff. We've actually um, talked about him before when we talked about the about learning uh, because he is uh, the uh, University of Washington professor who does the Audible series um, on the learning brain. And he talks about language de development specifically because it is one of the most fascinating things that can show how our brain naturally begins to learn extremely complex things. And one of the things that he brings up is that to really communicate in a language, when you really get to that level of, of fluidity, you're, you're talking about 100,000 words, which seems like a lot, but it, it's even bigger than that when you think of the word combinations that also change meaning, you know, so you're, you're maybe even getting closer to something like a million different um, unique communications that have to exist to just be fluid uh, and fluent within a form of communication, hmm. even though some of those may cross over from one language to another. And how does that happen that you get to that point? And one of the things that he, he points out is that it appears that we are actually genetically hardwired to learn human language. Hmm. And, you know, in hearing that, one of the things that first comes to mind is, okay, so for genetically hardwired, so you think of like um, a mountain goat that gets born and it's genetically hardwired to be able to climb within an hour of being born, it's climbing up and down rocks and things. Yeah. And human beings, we look at human beings and we say, well, what are we genetically inclined to do? Because really, a baby is born and by instinct they can suck and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Steve. I'm just thinking that, yeah, some people probably suck more than others and they weren't born for much of anything. That's where my mind true. Be careful the words you're using there. Well, let's see. They can create suction. <laughs> How's that? They, they can, they can feed. Um, and that's and that's that's about it. That's the only thing that it, it appears that they are just genetically were born knowing how to do, um, except for it appears that we are genetically inclined to begin learning language from maybe even before we we leave the womb. That we are beginning to not just learn language but decode language. And you know he goes through and he really talks about the things that have to happen in order to decode. For example, we have to um, determine where a word starts, where it stops, especially since many of our words contain other words, like cat has at inside of it. And so somehow we've got to learn where at and cat is at. Um, now I feel like I'm Dr. Seuss as we're, we're, we're talking through this. Um, and, and it would be so – but yet even with that, this ability to decode – we can only decode human language. Like, for example, you could put a fax machine next to a baby all day long and and let it hear the, the beeps and bops and sounds of a fax machine, and it would never get to the point that it would say, oh, I understand what images is coming through. Yeah. Um, that even at that point where we – and humans invented that language, yet we cannot decode the language. 
Uh, and it's not just the speed, because if we look at the speed at which language is decoded in a human, we can actually decode pretty quickly. And you could slow that fax machine down. You'd never get to the point that you would understand what it is that it was saying. And so what um, they've come to understand is every human language or every natural language they call, there's more than 7,000 known human languages, all have actually more commonalities than differences. While I may not, I may hear someone speak German and may not be able to speak it, that language is essentially ends up being the same when it's all broken down in that it it's based off of um, a network of words. Um, it has uh, a certain grammatical structures such as verbs that and nouns. Um, uh, there's sub the different tenses. Um, and even though some languages may appear to have more tenses than other, like, for example, in English, we think of past, present, and future. And when in Spanish, you have, well, 14 different verb conjugations that help us define those tenses even further. <laughs> it still ends up coming down to the exact same concepts that are, that are being delivered. So it's, it's truly in our DNA to be able to communicate with other human beings. Now, how that really comes into what we're talking about today, I have no idea. I just think it's super, super cool. Well, I think it, it demonstrates our need for contact, communication, and so on. It's really what it does. Well, and I think it also just is, shows, and as you talked about it, our, our need for contact and communication, that um, we spend our whole lives trying to understand the people around us. You know, and, and even though after age 10, we'll never be able to learn a language quite the same as we could have had we learned it prior to that age, um, we still have that ability to continue decoding languages um, regardless of, of what our age is. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, I th and, and it is neat that as we continue to age, you know, we can continue to perfect our craft so to speak you know uh just like you say it's the, the way you put the words together uh creates so much value or it can create so much devalue i'm sure that's not proper english but <laughs> it, it, it could have the opposite effect right by by putting the words together incorrectly um and, and so it really is kind of interesting how that works and i think it's interesting too that language tends to house um, cultural interpretations as well, you know, and like for me, um, you know, I, I, I speak additional languages, um, but even as I speak them, there's, <laughs> there's sometimes things that I miss because I don't know the cultural context. And even when I've been tasked with translating things, sometimes I see that translation and it is, I mean, technically correct, but culturally very wrong that it, it really wouldn't actually communicate what it is that we want um, people to understand. And Steve, I, I, I don't speak two languages. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how much of that comes into the way the words are pronounced, you know, the emphasis on the syllables or the emphasis on the words and that type of thing? Uh, do, or is it, do you think it really is just a matter of the fact you're from a different culture and therefore it's, it's a harder reach for you to get there and understanding what the true meaning of it is sometimes. Well, and that's really a difficult question, you know, um, especially like, and, and so let's, let's talk about Spanish, for example, because um, it's really the other language that I speak really proficiently. Um, 
and uh, going from place to place and how one language, one, one, one way of saying things um, or dialect will change. You know, I, one, one example of that that comes to mind was back when I was a, a Mormon missionary, um, we knocked on a door and um, the other missionary there with me was uh, from Puerto Rico. And uh, he asked the woman there if she had a Bible. And she said, yes, she did. And so then he, um, he used a verb to ask her if she could get the Bible. Now, that verb where he was from just meant to get the Bible, coger. But any Spanish speakers listening here from other countries are now going, oh, Stephen Leonard, you've now got to put a language alert <laughs> on, your, uh, on your podcast because in many other countries, it is the F word. Uh. And... Um, and so where I was sitting there, he was asking her if she could get the Bible and I was turning red in the face and she was just thrown back because she had just heard him ask if she could yes. apply the F word to, to the Bible. <laughs> and, and, you know, the interesting thing is it wasn't necessarily, you know, like it, it, it's interesting how different cultures assign not just different meanings, but different values to different words mm-hmm. um, because Certainly, I think, um, and, and I'm not necessarily expert on, on what the uh, Puerto Rican dialects are of, of Spanish, but I believe that it could have the same context in Puerto Rico as the, as the bad word. It just depended on how you were to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. The word itself wasn't taboo. It was the emphasis that you might place on it that would change it from being a perfectly fine word to a completely, completely bad word. Uh, that's involved. And I think it has to maybe even do with how relaxed a culture is that uh, for some it might be, and and I even see it in in our English that we speak today in some places you can sit down and you can use profanities and it doesn't, it's not meant to hurt. It's not meant to harm. It's just a way of, of, of filling in spaces. You go to New York and you know, they don't use the word um, instead they use the F word sometimes, (laughs) you know, uh, where, where I'm from, that would be highly offensive. Uh, but there's maybe just a, a relaxation around certain cultural norms that allow that to happen. Where, where I'm at, we're much more prudish. And there is a right way and a wrong way to do everything. And that, and that appears to come out in our language as well, uh, in, in how much power we give different words. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. We 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 certainly give weight to it, and 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 what you're saying there. I know even prior to the call, uh, you and I prior to recording, I should say, you and I had a conversation, and just like the meanings behind them, and a couple couple two examples I'll throw out real quick is you know having a female dog, and so we know what a female dog is, but somehow that becomes a curse word or becomes a derogatory word. Um, and at the same time, you know, so we've taken a word that meant female dog and make it a derogatory word, but then we could also take, and I'll blame it on Michael Jackson. You can take the word bad and suddenly bad becomes a good word, you know, Mm -hmm. to call somebody bad. And so it, it really is interesting how words themselves can change over the course of time as well. Well, and I think you've you've actually hit on where culture um, and and even maybe the more negative sides of our culture comes out because yes, in English, the word for a female dog is um, is a derogatory term that we use on women. You know, a female dog meant for breeding is called this, 
but a male horse meant for breeding is a stud. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that um, a similar action. And in one side, it's like, this is, this is a, like a, a thing to be um, aspired to. But if a woman were doing it, we have a negative word right. that is associated with it that is used to say something bad. And I think it really does show that when we've got a, a our culture has a history of misogyny. Uh, and of course it's showing up in our language where we have things that just, that just don't match as you go from one. Um, and I think you even see it from words that, you know, dark and light, you know, why is, why is light good and dark bad? I mean, essentially the absence of light or having light, I guess it's bad if you're walking to the bathroom at night and you can stub your toe, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but there's nothing inherently evil about there being a lack of light or having a darker hue. But yet in our language, unfortunately, it has become one of those things that if you, if you say, oh, this is the darker side of something, that's mm -hmm. the more evil side. And then you wonder, how do we, how do we end up? And then maybe it's, it's subliminal, but if there's anything that we know about language is it does matter. And, and the language you use can affect the way people around you think and believe. And so if your whole life you hear those types of things, maybe we do have to, maybe it does generate an unconscious bias towards people who have a darker skin because we've used in our language dark to describe something that is inferior or something that is evil. Yeah. Well, I've never heard of anyone being afraid of the light, but definitely it, 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 does, <laughs> it does kind of carry some weight and it can certainly be used in a derogatory way when we talk about light and darkness. Uh, there's, there's no question there. And, and two, just like you said, um, the impact that that can play on a person. And so back to my conversation with Mr. Ralph Houck, you know, he was positive in the way he presented what he presented to me, but nevertheless, I was failing the class. And so he really could have gone a completely different way of explaining my failings than what he did. Uh, but because of the way he did it, it encouraged me. And certainly we've seen in our culture, again and again, people that just are continually beat up with words. And I know mm -hmm. it's a horrible thing, but it is a reality. But I think I've always somewhat argued too, though, it is kind of the importance that the individual themselves places on the word. Um, so let me kind of unpack this for a second, if you don't mind. Um, so being positive about fa passing the class, you know, oh, I can do it, I can do it, little train that could attitude, you know, I can do it, I can do it. Just because I think I can, and I know Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you cannot, you're correct. But just because I think I can, it doesn't necessarily mean I always can. Uh, mm -hmm. and so we can, our words can deceive us just as well as they can motivate us because I have never slam ducked a basketball in my life. So I might have thought that I could at one point in time, but I've eventually <laughs> learned that I can't do it, you know? So it, it really is kind of an interesting thing. But I, what I'm trying to drive to, though, is the importance of what we place on the words ourselves. Well, and I think that's interesting, as you've seen uh, groups who have been historically uh, disadvantaged um, and how at times they have taken those words that were used um, against them and embrace them 
mm. and and change their meaning of those words. And I think there's, there's several examples we could look to, but um, there there is power in owning a word and making that word your own. I'm not I'm not saying that um, all our defamatory words we should we should <laughs> embrace yeah. them and make them our own. I think I think that's not necessarily the point that we're trying to make. But there is really power in how we perceive the words that are used against us or for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I know just in my own example, we, if you listen back to one of our earlier podcasts, I talk about my uh, struggle with dyslexia. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things that I really did not like, and I'm still not a very big fan of, is the word disabled, mm-hmm. because it literally means unable. And it's not an empowering word to me. I don't like it. And I think a lot of people who are disabled don't like it on the same note. It's an empowering word from the perspective that if, uh, you know, you look at the Americans with Disabilities Act and 508 and, uh, and many of the laws that have come into play, if you didn't have this distinction, if you can't create this distinction, you don't have the power to make people accommodate or provide those accommodations. So the word comes with empowerment, but then also on the same note, sometimes it comes with with a label that you just don't want or dyslexic, you know, was means non-lexic. <laughs> how, how does that help me ever believe that reading is a possibility when really, you know, what is needed is often a modification or a different way of, you know, so I thought about like with disabled, if, if instead of calling someone disabled, we called them wheelchair enabled. <laughs> if there's someone who is enabled by a wheelchair, now they're not disabled anymore. They're abled by something else. Um, and I wonder if there's other terms like that as well that that we just throw out there and we use. And, and it gets difficult because I know it, it can feel like, especially if you're on the other side of it, like, well, what words am I allowed to use anymore? Mm-hmm. If everywhere I turn, they're like, don't use this word, don't use that. How am I supposed to describe it? Which can be very frustrating because if we can't if we can't talk something out, we end up having to act it out. So um, it, it can be one of the frustrations I think about languages is, is that words can can be such a difficult minefield to navigate yeah well and and you saying that just reminds me of in this day and age we talk so much about political correctness you know that Mm -hmm. oh everybody's so politically correct and that in itself has become a negative connotation to be politically Mm -hmm. correct or at least Maybe it's just circle I run, perhaps. But anyways, you <laughs> yes. know, it's the idea, though, political correctness in its core is the idea that you're dancing around a subject to accommodate somebody else that you would just rather deal with that subject directly and in a different manner. At least that's a very loose translation of how I would interpret it anyhow. Uh, but at the same time, though, we, we have to be conscious of the words we're using to be sensitive to the thoughts and feelings of other people. But to your point, it almost becomes, where do you draw that line? Uh, Just like, you know, the handicap versus wheelchair enabled. Well, wheelchair enabled is great, but I have crutches. So now I have wheelchair. (laughs) And then I have uh, visually impaired or not, well, yeah, would visually impaired. I was trying to think of having a dog, you know, I have a guide dog so I can see, but I guess that's, some reason anyways it it becomes so individualistic that you can't have as common of a language to uh describe larger things and and yeah you know and that's the duality of it if you can find a label and you can bring people in you create allies 
But on the same note, if you find an, a label that allows you to bring a lot of people in, you also lose individuality. Mm. You know, so it it's empowering and it's also just defeating because now you're part of a larger group and you're not seen as that individual anymore. Um, and, and, you know, and I think when it comes to that political correctness, I think another frustration that people often have with it is, is a frustration that just exists in language overall. And that is that language is, will, language will change on you. That how you spoke as a child and how you spoke as, speak as an adult. My kids make fun of me all the time for speaking like an old man. I mean, Leonard was talking about how bad used to mean bad and then bad became cool. And then as he said that, I'm like, well, if my kids were listening to you, they'd be like, wow, Leonard, you're so old. Yeah. <laughs> no one would say it that way anymore. Now if something's cool, you say sick. <laughs> you know, and, and when, when, when I was a kid, sick meant, you know, sick. <laughs> it wasn't like, Yes, That's it, a really cool car. If you had a sick car, it was probably a car that didn't run really well or smelled bad or something. And like with advancements in technology that are frustrating for us, advancements in language can be equally as frustrating and they creep up on us slower and we don't get an opportunity to just download a patch that helps us now understand the English 2.65, the new version of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do add to our language as well. You know, uh, Google made it into the dictionary as a search word uh, not too long ago. And then, of course, the year of the word, uh, the the word of the year, excuse me, for 2000. Um, what year are we in? My Lord. <laughs> 2020. It's been 20 years since 2000. <laughs> yes. Anyhow, <laughs> the word this year is what I'm trying to get out is probably Zoom or Zoom bomb or something to do with Zoom. You know, so mm -hmm. it, it was, although the word may have existed prior, it, it just didn't have the same meaning now as it does. So, well, and these words will outlast or outlive whatever it was that created them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like, you know, you hear about that was the death knell. I don't know what a death knell is. Do you know what a death knell is? <laughs> but I'm certain at some point that had meaning that was relatable. But now the meaning has continued and we have a we have a little phrase that we use. But it where it came from, although maybe we could Google it with our new word and, and find out where where it came from. It, it's it's lost to most anyone that's even using it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, as we, we talk about language, I think it's really important. Um, and especially as you, as you're bringing up the political correctness, um, is that to what degree should we be accountable for our, our the words that we use? Um, especially knowing that the words we use, and this is something we hear going back and forth, I think across the political spectrum, you know, that, that, uh, somebody says something and, and, and actually, I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a personal example. Um, and this is, again, going back to many years ago when I was a, a Mormon missionary. And I stopped somebody on the street and he said he was an atheist, which, you know, now I now I sympathize with him because that's where I ended up. But um, we stopped this guy in the street who was an atheist and he told us he was an atheist. And and I decided to debate him. And as we were debating, we got a little bit of a crowd start to form around us. And my whole goal in doing this wasn't to belittle him or make fun of him or shame him. But it was with this idea that at some point, um, as I was trying to point out that I believed what he was saying was wrong, 
that he would come around and then we would have a discussion where we could grow or I could share my belief. But what was interesting is as we were debating, and I don't remember all of the things that were said, and and I've I've always been pretty quick with words, and I definitely learned that just because you win a debate doesn't mean you're right. But as I, as I was talking and as I turned some of his words back on him, you know, I would get a little rise from the people who were starting to watch this. And then all of a sudden I lost control of the situation as everyone around started ridiculing the person that I was talking to. Hmm. And I realized that that was actually my words that caused that. I mean, they had their own agency and how they were going to respond but I had in, essentially incited verbal violence against somebody because of the words I was using. So the words we use matter and the things we say will have an effect beyond what we can control. Yeah. So how do we weigh the things we say knowing that they will gain a life of their own? Yeah. Well, certainly putting thought to it before we speak. <laughs> That's my quick answer. <laughs> but, and it's so true though, really, you know, uh, because so oftentimes I think that we are anxious to express ourselves or to communicate or to fill a void of silence that we see, whatever it might be, that we don't take the time to really consciously weigh out what it is that we're going to say. And I'm certainly just as guilty as anyone in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but I do, uh, I do think it's important for us. And and two, you know, as we think about the weight of our words, I mean, we we form our thoughts with words as well. And so I typically will give a disclaimer, oftentimes, and say, "Hey, I'm thinking out loud right now," and that mm-hmm. sort of means. I might say something wrong. I might say it a little off. I'm not trying to be irreverent or disrespectful, but I'm just thinking out loud and need to form my thoughts. Because sometimes for me, it's just easier to sort of throw them in the air and then collect them and re-put them into the package that sounds mm-hmm. better delivered, you know? Yeah. And and I so I think even you, I, that's a great point, that it, just communicating what we are or are not doing, you know, that I'm just... I'm just throwing a thought out there. I'm not actually necessarily even expressing my own opinion. And I think that comes down to maybe even, um, you know, you shared an article with uh, me earlier this week, Leonard. Um, um, was it the Huffington Post? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things I took away from that article was um, that we really need to not overspeak. Like we, we often feel like to get to a point, we need to push way beyond that point. Like um, – I want to say that um, uh, gun violence should be reduced. So instead of saying um, just that, that I feel like we need to reduce gun violence, I say uh, not only does gun violence need to be reduced, but anybody who owns a gun should uh, recognize that they are um, holding an instrument of death and that they are are, um, (laughs) tacitly approving murder. Mm-hmm. See, I'm way overstepping what I actually believe, but or what I'm actually thinking, and I think we tend to do that. I think we tend to do that in in our media and and in our Facebook posts is that we actually speak way beyond what we actually believe because we're letting our emotion that knows no bounds 
give the argument rather than our logic, which would end at a certain point. You know, like um, the movement that I support, when would that movement go too far? <laughs> when yeah. would that movement now become something that I would want to pull back? And we rarely think about it in that terms. We rarely think about it from the perspective of, you know, I want freedom for all. Well, when would freedom for all go too far? You know, and I think even me just asking that question, many people would say, well, freedom for all could never go too far. Really? Truly? Do you actually think that? Because we have a whole series of laws that say freedom can go too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, your your freedom to drive a car uh, should end at a certain velocity. You know, we have laws that say, you know, your freedom to swing your arms around, you know, pell-nell ends where another person's face begins, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, we have a lot of places where we say freedom for all goes too far, that freedom is, is, can become a, a bad thing if it crosses a certain line. And if we don't think about where the boundaries are of what we're speaking about and we speak in open-ended terms, I think that's one of those areas that we can actually um, create dangerous speech uh, that leads to consequences that we don't necessarily intend. I think it even kind of goes into what you talked about um, I think last week about using absolutes yes. um, in our confrontations. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I heard a great quote this, this over the weekend that I think ties in with what you're saying now. And uh, it, it might be kind of a good stopping point and, and see what you've got to add to it. But uh, a guy named Greg Gervais, a friend of mine, said, emotions are not intelligent. Emotions are not intelligent. So what am I trying to say? Well, we're talking about language. So when we speak out of our emotions, rather than form our words describing our emotions, we are oftentimes not going to be speaking very intelligently because we've often been moved by our emotions and we've reacted and later wish that we had not reacted. So in the same way, when we allow emotions to drive our words, we're going to say oftentimes something that overstepping those boundaries, just like you were talking about, you know, great cause. We don't want anybody shot, but if we speak too much, we're acting out of emotion rather than really acting out of intelligence. And I, I, I'm reluctant to say that in our culture today, but I, I think it's true. You know, we have to find the right words to say what we're saying. Uh, and I think the article, Steve, that we found, uh, I think it says it best. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you response after this uh the last line of the article says we must align our words voice inflection and tone eye expression body language and action with our inner awareness in an honest exchange and so it really it just comes down to aligning ourselves with what we're saying and really meaning what we're saying rather than just be saying something to say it i guess what are your thoughts I think that so well points out that communication is hard. <laughs> that it, why I, I completely understand the frustrations that people have and what, what why can't I just say this? Why can't I just say that? Why can't I just share this joke? Why can't I just do these other things? And it's because, you know, the power that you're dealing with is so much more than just the word or the joke or the... <laughs> that that communication goes so much further that's there's so much that goes into it so i think one point that i just really would love to drive home one last time before we end and it's what you said earlier leonard when you said um 
that when we talk from our emotions, we say things, you know, we don't mean, but it's much better when we have those emotions to choose words that describe our emotions. And that's really where I found my communication to become more effective when I'm feeling emotionally charged. And it's something that, you know, is, is often talked about when in communication classes and in not using the, the you statements, instead describing how you felt about something. Like, I feel this way when you say this, because no one can argue with how you feel. That's your emotions. Those are your emotions. But when you say, you did this to me or you did that, um, you made me feel this way. Uh, that's when the argument, that's where the conflict happens. And that's where the lack of growth happens as well. Yeah. So um, just one more time, I think that that would be a great challenge for all of us is that when we feel these intense emotions, which we're bound to feel this week, and we're bound to feel as we move towards the multiple social conflicts that we're currently dealing with um, as a country, as a world, is let's try describing our emotions rather than speaking from those emotions. Yeah, so well said, Steve. And, and the last comment, I'm sorry, I wasn't going to add any, but I will. <laughs> the last comment I will say is it does seem in our society today, with all the noise that we have, the internet, the media, social media, and so on, it seems as though the loudest voice is often the craziest voice. And so those of us with voices need to recognize um, our voices are heard. And, and we may want to control what it is we're saying. We don't need to worry about, uh, you know, pay-per-click and how many people are clicking our links and things like that. But we just need to speak what we know to be the truth and trust that the right audience will find that truth and, and follow that truth rather than just be that uh, person that just is out there seeking somebody to hear their words and going down a path we don't want to go down. And let's make it a conversation, you know, that when we speak our truth, then let's stop and listen to someone else's. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess to that um, aim, <laughs> we'd love to hear your truth, right? Um, we, we haven't gotten a lot of feedback recently on how what you're thinking. Uh, and we do we do know that you listen. We can actually see the listens pop in. Uh but I would really love to hear from some of you, especially I would love to hear if there's something we're missing, uh, because uh, for sure I have my perspective, Leonard has his, and of course mine is superior to Leonard's, but yours is maybe <laughs> superior to mine. So we would love to hear um, what your thoughts are on these and, and, and maybe in certain circumstances, have you come on and share those? Uh, because we only have the limited perspective that Leonard and I have. We'd really love to hear from all of you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, and so reach out to us at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. Drop us a note. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know what's going on. And if you do have some ideas of some topics that you might want us to tackle, we'll be glad to look at those and see what we can do. And like Steve said, who knows, you might win a chance uh, to be on the program here. <laughs> so with that, we'll wrap down our talk for this week and end our language. Uh, but before we do again, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Upwards Unlimited, and they can help you and your business with conversations, connections, collaboration, and community. Thanks everyone again for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>